You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing. To commemorate this anniversary, the Nixon Library has a brand new special exhibition on display throughout the year. It's called Apollo 11, One Giant Leap for Mankind. What was President Nixon's space policy doctrine? Here to answer this and other questions is Dr. John Logston. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Affairs at the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs. He founded the school's Space Policy Institute. He is author of John F. Kennedy and the Race to the Moon and After Apollo, Richard Nixon and the American Space Program. Dr. Logston, welcome. Glad to be with you. Just to start off, how did you come to make space policy your field of study? Well, it goes back a long way to a rather specific date, March the 1st, 1962. Uh, I was working in Manhattan and went to watch John Glenn parade through the city after his uh, first orbital flight and uh, became uh, curious of what this space stuff was all about. I I was old enough, but didn't pay much attention to the Sputnik in sixty in fifty seven, or even to John Kennedy's announcement we were going to the moon in sixty one. But but uh, seeing uh, John Glenn uh, accompanied by Vice President Johnson somehow uh, flicked the switch, and I went back to graduate school that fall in political science and wrote every graduate paper including my dissertation on space-related topics. And the rest is literally history. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about the origins um, of the Apollo program? Well, uh, there are converging paths to uh, what became Apollo. NASA had set out already in 1959, a year after it was opened, uh, its long-range plan, which called for uh, missions to send humans to the moon after 1970. Uh, so NASA had selected the moon as its goal for human spaceflight uh, very early on. Uh, the first program, of course, was Project Mercury. The program to follow that was a three-person spacecraft capable of long-duration flights in Earth orbit and uh, flights around the moon that was announced in August of 1960 and called Apollo. Uh, at that point, it did not have uh, a lunar landing as its goal. Uh, this was all while President Dwight Eisenhower was in office. Uh, J- John Kennedy became president in uh, January of 1961, not very interested in space as he became president. But then uh, on April the 12th, 61, Soviet Union launched Yuri Gagarin, the first human in orbit. Uh, Kennedy found that the world reaction and the domestic reaction to the Gagarin flight uh, was was uh, very positive for the Soviet Union and a propaganda loss for the United States and decided the United States uh, should uh, not or could not by default allow the Soviet Union to dominate this new area of activity. And he asked his advisors, what do we do? How do we catch up? Well, he, he wrote in a memo on April the 20th, uh, find me a space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win. 
and the answer came back, go to the moon. He gave that same, he gave that famous speech in 1962 at Rice University, President Kennedy did, um, about going to the moon. Um, why do you think, could you touch upon, you touched upon uh, about why it was important in terms of the Soviet threat, but broader in terms of national achievement and national space er, and national policy, why was, why was going to the moon so important? Well, uh, first, let me uh, do something I do too frequently, which is to point out that Kennedy, President Kennedy announced the lunar landing goal in a speech to the joint session of Congress on May the 25th, 1961. Uh, the Houston speech in September of 62 spelled out in very eloquent terms his reasons for making that decision. But the, uh, the decision to go to the moon was announced in 61, not 62. Why did Kennedy make that decision? Uh, space had become a, a kind of surrogate measure of national vitality, national power, national competence. Um, it's a little hard from the perspective of 60 years or almost 60 years later to realize how real the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union was for the allegiance, the loyalty, not only of the countries just becoming independent, but of, of uh, the countries of Europe, of Italy, of France, uh, had very active communist parties. So th there was a real competition for global political, economic, uh, and military leadership. And doing things in space got to be a measure of that, and, uh, or at least so Kennedy thought. And so, as, as I said, he decided the United States could not uh, allow the Soviet Union to dominate. And as if we were going to be in the space arena, we had better be first. What, in, what went into building um, the space program, especially um, NASA, into a vital, vital organization? Well, Kennedy not only talked the talk, he walked the walk, to use a cliche. He backed up his uh, uh, commitment to uh, going to the moon with uh, human and financial resources that were warlike in scale, although peaceful in intent. Uh, the NASA budget, the first year after his speech, went up 89% over the preceding year. Then uh, next year, 101%. NASA's workforce doubled. The contractor workforce quadrupled. So this was a mobilization of national effort towards a, a very clearly defined goal. Kennedy said, uh, send a, a man to the moon, return him safely to Earth before this decade is out. So you had a destination and you had a deadline. Could you take us through some of the important missions before Apollo 11? How many, how many were there and what were the most important ones? Well, uh, of course, there, uh, when Kennedy made his speech, our sum total of human spaceflight experience was a 15-minute suborbital flight by uh, Alan Shepard. So there were the orbital flights of Mercury, the 10 uh, flights of the two-person Gemini program, which uh, demonstrated that humans could survive uh, as long in space as it needed to get to the moon and back, and we could do the rendezvous that were necessary uh, for uh, getting to the moon. And then uh, Apollo, uh, the, 
the first Apollo was planned for February of 1967, but on January uh, 27th of 67, on the launch pad, there was a fire that killed uh, three astronauts, uh, Gus Grissom, Roger Chaffee, and Ed White. That set the program back as the uh, capsule was redesigned. So the first human flight in Apollo was in October of 1968. That was Apollo 7. It had been preceded by some tests of the Saturn V. And then what I think is probably almost as important as Apollo 11 was the decision to send the first flight carrying a crew on top of the Saturn V moon rocket uh, into orbit around the moon. That was Apollo 8. That happened uh, on, uh, they went into lunar orbit uh, on Christmas Eve, 1968, read from Genesis in the Bible. Bill Anders took the iconic Earthrise photo. Uh, and it, it was pretty clear that uh, we were only months away from getting to the moon. Then Apollo 9 tested the lunar uh, lander in Earth orbit. Apollo 10 was a dress rehearsal in May of 69 that did everything except actually land, got down to 40,000 feet above the lunar surface, and then came 11 in July of 69. What was the national attitude uh, like? Was there, was there a, a national mood uh, of excitement and anticipation that uh, the moon landing would be inevitable? Well, it certainly wasn't inevitable to start out with. Uh, uh, you have to go back and remember uh, how bad the 60s were. Uh, we were uh, bogged down in a seemingly endless conflict in Southeast Asia. There were um, uh, urban riots. Uh, our uh, leaders, uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, were assassinated. Uh, r- riots during the Democratic Convention in Chicago in '68. So uh, Apollo came as as one of the few positive uh, uh, things at that period of time. Uh, as it became clear, we were going to make the attempt to land on the moon in mid-69, I think there was a great deal of public excitement. I was part of it. I uh, traveled to uh, the Kennedy Space Center uh, and was there the day of the launch. In um, 1969, January 1969, Nixon is inaugurated president of the United States. He used a lot of allusion in his inaugural uh, to the moon landing. Um, Could you touch upon the idea of you talked a little bit about the nation being divided. Could you touch upon the use of going to the moon as a message of national unity? Well, I think uh, President Nixon, as he took office in January of 69, exactly six months before Armstrong stepped on the moon, just as a sidebar, uh, realized that, that, that the moon landing was going to be a national accomplishment of the first order and uh, very much wanted to use it to symbolize a number of the themes in his administration, including trying to bring the country together and restoring uh, respect for the country around the world. You had mentioned that um, Nixon, um, and and after Apollo, you had mentioned Nixon wanted to portray himself as a peacemaker. Uh, You had talked about um, 
the idea of national unity and getting respect for the United States throughout the world. Um, could you talk about it a little, a little bit more in terms of the Cold War at this period of time? Uh, why, why was this national achievement so important? Well, I mean, we were still locked in a geopolitical competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, and and uh, uh, one of the elements of, of Nixon's strategy was to seek a, a, a some form of detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, and and uh, so he, he uh, reached out uh, even before the uh, moon landing. Uh, the Apollo 8 commander, Frank Borman, made a trip to the Soviet Union. He was the first uh, U.S. astronaut uh, to go to the Soviet Union in, in, I believe it was June or early July 69, carrying a message that, that after the United States uh, was successful in Apollo, uh, we were interested in working with the Soviet Union on the next steps in space. Was there any sort of contingency? What if it had gone all wrong? I mean, what if the, what if the moon landing... Um hadn't happened as it, you know, as it didn't happen in Apollo 13. Was there a contingency of, um, of what might happen, sort of? A, um... Well, uh, sure. Uh, um, again, uh, the same person, Frank Borman, uh, still with us today, Apollo 8 commander, was detailed by NASA to the White House to help uh, President Nixon prepare for all the events surrounding Apollo 11 and, and the landing and at, at some point, he asked, uh, have you figured out what to say to the widows? Uh, you know, kind of implying that this was an extremely risky undertaking and that success was far from assured. And, and, and Nixon's speechwriter, uh, William Sapphire, uh, uh, wrote a, a speech that was prepared for Nixon in the event of, of a tragedy, and in particular, if if they couldn't get off the moon and were stuck on the moon. I, I believe you have that uh, speech in your uh, Apollo 11 exhibit at, at the Nixon Museum right now. Could you um, talk about... Uh, President Nixon greatly admired um, astronaut Frank Borman. Uh, um, could you Talk about their relationship a little bit. Well, I mean, in in doing the after Apollo book, one of the people I talked to was John Ehrlichman, and Ehrlichman said that that Nixon admired all the astronauts. He viewed them almost as the sons he had never had. Uh, but Borman um, among them was the straight shooter, the the cold warrior. Uh, his personality seemed to mesh very well. Uh, with with President Nixon, uh, and I, I talked to Borman in doing the book, and he said they were never social friends, but on a professional level, they got along extremely well. Uh, and 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 it was Borman that became a, a kind of source of trusted advice to uh, the president on and how to deal with uh, the the various elements of of celebrating Apollo 11. And what what were the elements in terms of celebrating it? Well, much uh, uh, there are funny stories here. Uh, the president uh, intended to go down and have dinner with the Apollo 11 crew a day or two before the launch. Uh, and the chief medical officer, Chuck Berry, 
uh, said, oh, you know, he's going to be carrying a lot of germs. Maybe that's not a great idea. And there was such a hullabaloo in the media that, that the president decided to cancel the trip and indeed not attend the launch. Uh, rather, he decided to attend the landing to welcome the crew back uh, from the moon as they came back to the Pacific Ocean on uh, July the 24th. And so he flew out to the aircraft carrier Hornet, even though NASA said they're going to go directly into isolation. All you can do is is talk to them while they're in their uh, isolation trailer. You're not going to be able to shake their hands or have any a direct interaction, but he was determined to be there and to mark the occasion of the return from the first trip to the moon. And he used, he built a global trip uh, around that journey to the Hornet. And he kept going. And, and uh, the most outstanding element of that trip was his visit to Romania, where he made the first steps to uh, his trip to China in uh what 1972 i guess uh but anyway opening up uh the the relationship with with china uh through the uh intermediary of of the romanian uh, dictator so in a sense nixon tethered some of his space policy to his uh to his foreign policy well i mean after all, Apollo was an exercise in foreign policy. That's why it was uh, started, and that's why it was completed. Uh, it was to send a message of American power, of American technological competence, of, of uh, kind of national spirit, not only to our citizens, but to the rest of the world. So it was a foreign policy uh, activity in the first place, and and uh, uh, Nixon recognized that and and decided to uh, um, kind of leverage it uh, to advance his foreign policy goals. Nixon, you had mentioned in after Apollo that um, in his discussions with Borman, Nixon talked about international possibly internationalizing the space program um, by using scientists um, and other personnel from other countries. Uh, to get them um, to get them up to speed in their uh, ventures to outer space, could you touch upon this a little bit? Well, Nixon called international involvement in uh, the space, U.S. space program his pet idea, uh, and he he was very interested in the possibility of flying non-U.S. astronauts on later Apollo missions. I uh, was told that the, there was a, a long queue of American. Uh, waiting for uh, flight assignments, and that if if uh, you were dropped down a a, a a German in the middle of that, uh, it would not be appreciated. Uh, but he he uh, pushed very hard to open the post Apollo space program to international participation, which did happen with the Canadians and and the Europeans contributing to the space shuttle program, and he also. Uh, was in favor of U.S.-Soviet cooperation that turned into the uh, Apollo-Soyuz mission carried out in 1975. So uh, I think uh, with with uh, no exaggeration, one can say that that President Nixon uh, uh, was was one of the uh, pioneers of of uh, international part. Participation in the U.S. human spaceflight program. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the Apollo-Soyuz mission? What that what that entailed? Well, uh, I mean, 
let's where I'm trying to think where to start with that. Uh, there was a movie in 1970 or 71 called Marooned uh, that showed a, a, a astronaut uh, stranded in space and rescued by a uh, Soviet uh, cosmonaut. Uh, and, and, and it kind of sparked the idea of, of uh, rescue missions and of learning how a U.S. spacecraft and a Soviet spacecraft could, in fact, rendezvous and dock. Uh, and and, that, and uh, the White House asked NASA to investigate the feasibility of that idea. That was done in 70 and 71. And just before uh, Nixon traveled to Moscow uh, for the uh, May 1972 U.S.-Soviet summit, uh, a decision was finally made to make one of the summit agreements an agreement to do this joint docking mission, which actually took place in 75. Could you, um, you devote a chapter of your book to the Nixon space uh, policy doctrine. Could you tell us generally what that entailed? Well, uh, it's a phrase that I coined. I mean, there was uh, whatever his engagement with the space program, President Nixon never made a space policy speech. Uh, what he did was commission, as he came into office, a study of what should happen after Apollo that was chaired by Vice President Agnew. And that study was captured by the visionaries in NASA and recommended after going to the moon, we should go to Mars and build up all the uh, capabilities required for an ambitious Mars mission in the 1980s. Uh, President Nixon judged that the country did not want to do that, that there was not public support for the kind of high level of spending that had made Apollo possible. And ultimately issued a response to this space task group report in a statement that it came out in March of 1970, which he said space has to take its place as uh, one of the normal things that the country does, not as something special and a, a great uh, expression of energy and money, but uh, it has to compete with all the other things we want to do in terms of priori priority, in terms of funding. And I think that has been the case since 1970, that the space program uh, had went from the 5% of the budget uh, that it was at the peak of Apollo. By the time Richard Nixon uh, left the White House, it was down close to 1% of the federal budget. Uh, and it stayed at that level or lower ever since. So I think uh, what I've called the Nixon Space Doctrine really defined the U.S. space program uh, from 1970 till today. Do you think that was a result of Cold War priorities where our spending would go in terms of uh, and, and conformity with a policy of uh, detente with the Soviet Union? Or did that reflect more domestic political considerations, policy considerations? I think it was more domestic uh, policy in the sense that, that uh, President Nixon gave very high priority to reducing the size of the federal budget. 
uh, and and therefore not spending a lot of money on discretionary things. And the space program is a discretionary thing unless it was fully justified. And in his judgment, uh, there was no compelling reason to keep the space program at a very high spending level. You had mentioned that he wanted to purpose some of the space exploration for domestic uh, purposes. Uh, could you tell us what that might have entailed or did entail? Well, I mean, uh, one of the things most important to any politician is getting reelected. Uh, and as President Nixon came up for reelection in 1972, he recognized that the space program w- could be a, a very uh, uh, useful producer of jobs in uh, states that were critical to his reelection, and in particular California, where he was behind in the polls uh, to Senator Muskie in late 1971. And so one of the elements in his decision to approve as a follow-on to Apollo, the space shuttle program, uh, was was the employment impact uh, that it would have uh, nationally, but particularly in Southern California. Um, and it, 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 there's nothing particularly nefarious about that. That's the way things operate. NASA launched um, the shuttle program uh, beginning in the Nixon administration. Could you t- could you give us a background on the origins and development of the shuttle program? Sure. Uh, as, as people in NASA thought about what they would like to do after Apollo, their first priority was to create a, a permanent outpost in Earth orbit, a, a space station. Uh, and the one that they settled on was a 12-person space station, hopefully launched by a Saturn V moon rocket. They recognized the economics of operating a space station uh, required some form of lowering the cost of sending supplies and rotating crews, uh, something to, to lower the cost of space transportation, uh, something to go back and forth to the station, something to shuttle. And so in 69 and 70, uh, NASA studied a fully reusable uh, aircraft type landing on a runway uh, vehicle called the space shuttle. The Nixon administration decided in 1970 that they would not support a space station. And now all that was left of NASA's post-Apollo plans were was the space shuttle concept. And uh, NASA reinvented it as a launch vehicle for everything, uh, not only for uh, the NASA program, but for the military program. And so it was designed to meet the requirements for launching intelligence satellites and other military programs. Uh, It had to be cost effective. The OMB uh, insisted uh, that that the economics showed that it was less expensive than uh, just throwing a launch vehicle away every time you used it. And so there was a kind of optimistic economic analysis underpinning the decision. And Ultimately, uh, the administration for a combination of factors, keeping humans flying, uh, keeping um, uh, NASA occupied, NASA engineers producing uh, good jobs for uh, scientists and engineers across the country, 
providing a military capability that we seem very promising, uh, all of those added up to a case for approving the shuttle. And so it was, the approval was announced January the 5th, 1972 at the Western White House. Our guest today is Dr. John Loxton, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. Our topic was Richard Nixon and the space program. Dr. Loxton, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda. <laughs>